Welcome to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. On this show, the team of experts from Bright Horizons College Coach aim to demystify college admissions and finance. From choosing the right college, developing a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and more. Each episode will help guide your family through the various steps of the process. Now, here is your host. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to today's episode of Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. I am your host for today, Ian Fisher. We've got a great show lined up for you, and I'm really excited to share uh, some content across the three different segments that we want to talk about. Before I do that, I want to invite everyone to have a listen to some of the additional college admission podcasts that are out there on the NACAC Podcast Network. Now, NACAC stands for the National Association of College Admissions Council. And they've put together a really wonderful network of podcasts all about college admission. If you're interested in hearing different perspectives around the topics that we discuss every day or every week here on this show, you can go to the NACAC website and search for the podcasts on that podcast network. So highly recommend doing that because it can be great sometimes to get some different perspectives and, you know, to, to, we always want you to listen to our show, of course, but maybe dabble in some other shows here and there as well. (laughs) And I wanted to mention that because with our first segment today, we've got uh, my colleague, Kenan Dick, and, and Kenan used to be an admission officer at, at Swarthmore College. He's been with College Coach for a long time. And Kenan, I want to welcome you to the show. Thanks for being here today. Sure. It's been my pleasure. Now, one of the things we're going to talk about today for this, this particular segment is, is consortium colleges. Mm-hmm. And the idea with a consortium is that you've got you know your home college where you attend, and then you also have the opportunity to potentially get some exposure to other colleges at the same time, which is very similar to the podcast network with NACAC, right? You come to getting in a college coach conversation and do all your listening here, but then you might dabble uh, in some of those other perspectives at the same time. But let's just talk a little bit about the structure of a consortium college. And we'll do some a little bit about examples. But for those who are unfamiliar, how best can we describe what a consortium really is all about for undergraduate education? I think probably the best way um, to describe it is simply a, a collaborative effort among different institutions to provide a wider range of services, of opportunities um, in various um, parts of student life, whether that's academic, co-curricular, uh, extracurricular, et cetera, mm-hmm. and pool those resources together. So what you often will see is smaller colleges that are joining in these consortiums so that they can uh, do that and offer more to their individual students than they would be able to um, by themselves, right? Yeah. Um, and so there are, are a whole range of different consortiums uh, that are out there. I think there's over 100 uh, different consortium agreements the, um, but some of the biggest ones, the most well-known, I think, are the, the Claremont Colleges, um, the five colleges in Massachusetts, as well as the Quaker um, College Consortium in Philadelphia. Those are some of the ones that most people um, kind of think of when they're thinking about this collaborative effort. And I think that as probably the hallmark of the consortium idea would certainly be the Claremont Colleges. Um, yeah. That the you know the proximity of those five campuses all being literally adjacent to one another, um, you can just you know, like there's this three foot white wall and you can literally just like flop over to you know the other side and now you're on a different campus and um, and so they're very close 
but they also share sports, they share um, classroom uh, activities, they share um, you know, different events in terms of um, recruiting for students. Those kinds of things are all kind of packed together. And yeah. so because they are so small, like the largest one is 1,700 students, they're able to offer a lot more to each of their students because of that um, agreement. Yeah, and I think if you took any one of those campuses, and, and to be clear, it's Pomona, Pitzer, Claremont McKenna, Scripps, which is a women's college, and then Harvey Mudd College, which is focused mostly on, on engineering, but it has a nice liberal arts bent to it as well. Yeah. If you picked up any one of those colleges and lifted it away from the group and just set it on its own, I think in some respects, they would feel incomplete. There really is something about the consortium with the Claremont schools that that is integrated. And, you know, I, Pomona was my first choice college when I was applying. I, I thought the consortium was a real advantage of, of choosing Pomona. Um, and I've been to visit since I started here at College Coach to also have a look at those campuses. And it's really interesting to hear how the students talk about their experiences, not just as a member of their home institution, but also saying things like, yeah, Harvey Mudd's got the best brunch and, mm -hmm. you know, Pitzer <laughs> throws the best parties and I play intramural flag football with the you know, students over from Pomona. And it's like, it's just really interesting how there's an, a community that's generated from these 5,000 undergrads, even though no campus is larger than, you know, the 1,700 that, that you mentioned. Right. Um, why would a student be drawn to this? I mean, are, are there, you know, real opportunities beyond just having a greater number of students to interact with that come from a consortium kind of model? Um, I think so. Um, I think that it, in the case, you know, obviously the one that I know best is, you know, the Quaker Consortium with University of Pennsylvania, Haverford, Bryn Mawr, and Swarthmore. Yeah. And I think that one of the nice things about that is that because of, especially with the University of Penn being so large, that the opportunities for doing uh, research at uh, or Penn um, Research, all of that, I think, offers all of these students something that they would not necessarily have access to if they just stayed in their home, camp, home campus. The other cool thing about it, I think, is that even though these are Quaker institutions and have a very similar ethos, they are still quite different in terms of the campus cultures. Yeah. Um, and so the, you know, the, the people that you meet, the people that are in your um, classes in these collaborative uh, classroom environments really do kind of expand your um, your horizons in a way that I think is is tangible. So I think that they do really offer something um, in a way being part of these consortiums offers something to, to students that you would not get um, for you know these small schools that are are kind of insular. That's actually a great point because you know in visiting some of these campuses, I think it's very interesting how, they really lean into the things that they're really good at. Like if you, it, you would think that if you walk from Claremont McKenna up to Harvey Mudd, that you're, you're really feeling like you're a part of one campus, but yep. you can feel the change in terms of the architecture, in terms of the personality of the students. And I think what's really interesting is it allows those institutions as individuals to really figure out what it's best at and to cultivate that strength because there's the knowledge that you have access to these other consortiums at the same time. And one of the things I think that is really notable with the Quaker Consortium, with the five colleges in uh, Amherst, Massachusetts, and with the Claremont schools is each of them has a women's college as, or at least one women's college in the case of the five colleges, we've got both Smith and Mount Holyoke. 
mm-hmm. as a part of that group. And I, that's a really interesting component to the consortiums uh, as well, especially if you're a student that's thinking about going to a women's college, but you don't want to only go to a women's college, you want access to the consortium. Did you see some of that in terms of students as they were thinking about Bryn Mawr, you know, maybe rolling Swarthmore into that conversation? Absolutely. And I think that um, I, I think that it gave the students at Bryn Mawr the option of being in classroom uh, environment with the vast majority of women, right? Um, sure. And so that classroom environment was considerably different from the other, you know, the other campuses. And so the the benefits of going to an all women's college was was kind of protected in that um, institution, but you also had access to these other schools, right? So if you wanted to take classes that Bryn Mawr did not necessarily offer, you still had that option to to go to those schools and take that uh, that set of coursework. So I think that you know that's a that's a great note um, is that the as a student who's interested in women's colleges, it really does offer kind of the best of both worlds in my mind. Um, and and offer a lot of opportunities that might not be um, otherwise offered. I, I also think about it as I don't know if my you know teenage self would have had this view, but as somebody who is a, you know a man in education, you know we work mostly with women all day. Mm-hmm. Um, you know we're sort of in the minority as as far as gender is concerned, and mm-hmm. I like that environment. I mean I I think that it's mm-hmm. actually really great. And so the idea of being um, a college male at Pomona, but getting to take a class at Scripps where most of the other students in the class are women, I think mm-hmm. creates a really interesting learning experience as well. Um, and, and so there's an opportunity there, I think, even for young men to think about, hey, I can, I can experience a women's college in some respect in terms of the coursework in a way that I wouldn't be able to do um, outside of this consortium. Certainly uh, goes both ways. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. Um, what do we think about, you know, like, these consortiums, I think they've got a lot of really great advantages for students to pick up on. Are there disadvantages? Is there a sense of, you know, a lack of maybe clear identity with that school because you feel like you're matched up more with the consortium? Is it just trying to keep track of all of these different rules and systems and regulate? Like, are there any drawbacks that you could see in your time working at Swarthmore that that affected students because of the consortium? Or is it just positive? I only saw positives. I really didn't see um, any any downside to it. Um, the only potential downside that that I could point to would be depending upon the proximity. And this is why you see a lot more um, interchange, especially in class sharing between Haverford and Bryn Mawr, was because they're half a mile apart, right? Yeah. Um, and so you could get to a ten o'clock class at Haverford. Um, and then back to your 11 o'clock class at Bryn Mawr. Wow. You can't really do that with Haverford and, um, and Swarthmore, for instance, because there's a, a shuttle, takes 20 minutes, you know, that kind of thing. Um, there's a train ride into uh, Philadelphia for, uh, for Penn classes. So that's going to be significant in terms of how you manage that scheduling. Yeah. But um, certainly with uh, the Claremont uh, group, as well as some of the schools in uh, Amherst, there, you know, there can be those types of challenges, but I think that's pretty much the only downside that I've seen in terms of the the institutional sharing of resources. Um, yeah, I think there, that, and then also I think that there is a potential for a student to say, "Hey, I'm going to go to this school." And then I'm going to have the opportunity to take lots of classes at this other institution. And it might not actually be the case that they're able to do as much as they hope that they could. Right. So I remember being on the Pomona tour 
oh my gosh, I don't even know how many years ago it was at this point, um, probably mm-hmm. 20. And and asking the tour guide, it was like, so if I take math, do I go over to Harvey Mudd for my math classes? And he was like, well, no, Pomona's got great math instructors as well. So you don't necessarily go there. But I was already as a prospective student thinking, all right, I'm going to take this class at Claremont McKenna and I'm going to take this one at Pitzer and this one. at And really you do take the majority of your classes at your home institution because they're the one that's granting you that degree. And so sometimes the dreams that you have about this cross-registration might not be able to come to fruition because of logistics or because of expectations of your particular home campus. Um, Mm -hmm. And what about students who are, you know, this sounds appealing, right? This is a cool option. And they're starting to look at it in the research phase. How do students think about applying to a consortium school? I mean, are they saying, look, I'm really interested in the consortium. And so I'm going to look at the five colleges and I'm going to apply to all five. Or do they usually find one and the consortium is an added feature of the one that they like? How do you find that students typically engage with that question? It's been my experience that most of the time the students are focused on one institution of that group. And typically it's because, as you pointed out earlier, that if you think about you know the Claremont or um, you know, the Quaker Consortium or especially the Amherst Consortium, there, the differences among the students um, culturally in those in those campuses can be pretty significant, and the selectivity of some of those campuses can also be pretty significant um, and different from one another. It's a lot different to try to get into UMass Amherst than it is to get into Amherst College, and so. Part of what um, what they usually will focus on is which of those five is the best match for me, and then think about how that um, set of resources can expand my horizons if I wish it to. Mm-hmm. But I think most students um, that I've worked with that are focused on these types of, of campuses are thinking about the home campus primarily, yeah. and the consortium is kind of the icing on the cake. I think that tends to be true. Do you ever discourage students who are looking at one consortium school and really love it from applying to a second consortium school? I, I've had this thought before, and I've had this conversation with students mm-hmm. where let's say they love Pomona. They mm-hmm. kind of like Pitzer. They want to apply to both. In a vacuum, they would apply to both. But I imagine this eventuality where let's say you get into Pitzer, you don't get into Pomona. How does it feel to be a student at Pitzer when Pomona's right over there, a stone's throw away, and you don't, you're not actually a part of that community in the way that you'd hoped. Do you ever talk to students about that or counsel about how that's going to feel when they make their final choice? That's an interesting question. Um, I haven't had that specific um, situation. Um, the only time that I've, I've experienced that kind of tangentially was students who would apply to both Swarthmore and Haverford. Mm-hmm. And felt like you know one was a, was the first choice, the other was a second choice. And the interesting thing was, and I can only think of like one particular case um, where the the student was applying to both and hoping to get into Swarthmore, but Haverford would be that second option. That because they didn't get that first option, they chose not to exercise either. And so I think that when when you feel like that primary option is closed, um, it's kind of like being taken off the wait list in June. You have a lot of students who are kind of feel like, yeah, I was excited last month, but now I'm kind of not right. Right. Um, And so I think that that, that set of options that felt 
clear in the application stage tends to fade um, in the reality stage of, is this really going to work for me? Yeah, and I think we see similar kinds of things with a student that maybe applies for a first choice major at a university, and then they get admitted to the university, but not for that major. And then the question becomes, do I actually want to be here if I can't be an engineering major? Exactly. Tough question, I think. I, you know, and I think... Yeah. It's not, I'm not being totally fair to Pitzer in this example. I'm just, I'm prioritizing Pomona because that was the school that I was really interested in. But, but Pitzer would say, look, we're, we've got a great community of students and, and we're, we're really um, talented in our own right in terms of the kind of experience that we have to offer. Mm -hmm. um, are there any other things that you would say that students should pay particular attention to in the research phase as they're maybe investigating some of these consortium colleges? Well, yeah, like I said, um, you know, these are kind of the, when people, especially in admissions, think about um, consortiums, these are probably the top three that come to mind. But right. there's the Atlantic Consortium, there's others that, yeah. um, that are similar. And I think that as students are thinking about um, the sharing of these resources, I think it's a really good idea for them when they're on campus, and hopefully they do have the opportunity to go to campus, to really ask those types of questions about how accessible is this really, right? Yeah. And, um, and what are the advantages um, in terms of my particular interests? Is it just co-curricular? Is it just um, activities that I can do on those campuses? Is it primarily social? Um, what are the things that I hope to get out of that type of relationship? And what is the actuality of that? Um, and I've talked to Amherst students who say, we don't really participate in a lot of you know, what the consortium offers we kind of feel like we have everything we need right here. Sure. So, um, so there isn't as much um, interchange on the Amherst College uh, campus as there might be on some of the others. Right. So I think it, it, it really depends upon what the students' interests are in those member colleges and making sure that they are going to get the type of experience they want from their home college as well as those um, consortium options as well. Yeah, and I'm, I'm really glad that you mentioned also the Atlantic Consortium. I was doing some, some research uh, in advance of this uh, segment, and it really looks like what's interesting about that Atlantic Consortium, which includes Clark, Atlanta, Morehouse, and Spelman, and also the Morehouse School of Medicine, so historically Black colleges and universities. What I really liked about what I was reading there is that it felt like it was building that community, developing those sort of connections to the roots of that place in, in Atlanta. And you can imagine that some of the value of that consortium might even obtain after graduation where you're a part of this collective, this consortium. Hey, you went to Spelman, I went to Morehouse and there's an opportunity to leverage that for a professional network on, on into the future. So, you know, sometimes students are really thinking about the day-to-day -day of going to classes and where am I gonna register and what I'm gonna take. But I think that these consortiums are also well-situated to say, hey, we've just quadrupled your alumni network by being a part of this organization. And that can create some really interesting and exciting opportunities for you. Absolutely um, true. So this is great. I mean, just in having this uh, segment today, I, I, I learned a little bit about some of these different consortiums and uh, mm -hmm. I think that they're really appealing for students and uh, it's worth having a look. So thanks Absolutely. again for coming in and talking through this with us. Uh, my pleasure. All right, folks, when we come back, we are gonna start to talk about what seniors need to be doing as next steps as they are making their final decision. So if you've got a senior at home and you're starting to think about where you're going to put in that enrollment deposit, you want to, won't want to miss that next segment. We'll be right back. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. 
When it's time to go through the college admissions process, look to Bright Horizons College Coach for ethical guidance and customized support. Our educators will get to know your students' ambitions and talents, help highlight hard-won achievements, and create a plan for getting into a top-choice school. That plan includes helping your student choose classes and extracurriculars, create a college list, brainstorm and edit essays, and navigate college financing options. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To submit a question for an upcoming listener Q&A segment or to suggest an idea for a future segment, please send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. All right, everyone. Welcome back to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. We had a really great discussion in the first segment all about consortium colleges and some of the opportunities that are provided by being a student at one of the institutions that's a member of a consortium. But now we're going to shift gears a little bit and start talking about the more active conversations that seniors are having as they're making their final decisions. And joining us to do that is a former admission officer from Georgetown University, former producer of this podcast, uh, Lauren Randall. Hey, Lauren, welcome back to the show. Hi, thanks, Ian. Former producer, but ongoing lover of this podcast. That's right. You're (laughs) a big fan and you continue to be. So let's talk a little bit about seniors, right? Um, It's April 13th where we are. It's going to be April 21st, I think, when families are listening to this. And students are aware of every school that's made an admission officer, at least in the regular round or offer in the regular round and are now trying to decide where they actually want to send their enrollment deposit. Let's just talk through some of the considerations that students might be making at this point in the process. Um, if I think of a lot of students, if they've got that first choice and they're locked in and they've, they've submitted that deposit, it's over, right? Like they're, mm-hmm. they're starting to connect with their future classmates and there's not a lot of complexity there. We'll come back to those students. But for people who are still trying to make that final decision, how would you encourage them to take steps to make this as easy as possible, given it is such a significant decision? Yeah, this is this is a huge decision to make. Um, I, I often say it's the first major adult decision that, is, that a student makes. Um, it's a big one. But, you know, I think that if the student has really done their research along the way of putting together their college list, hopefully a lot of this groundwork is already done. You know, right. hopefully that they've already gone to visit in person. If they haven't, then that now is the time. Um, if, they're, uh, if they can get to campus or if there's accepted student reception weekends on campus or locally, um, just connecting with those school communities is, is hugely important. Um, there are always Facebook groups or Instagram groups, you know, to, um, to, to get involved, but to start chatting with your peers. Um, I really do think at this point, I think it's rare. I think it's really rare for a student, you know, last couple days leading up to May 1st, where they have to submit a deposit to one school. I think it's rare that they're really conflicted mm-hmm. unless they didn't put the energy and effort into um, forming a, you know, a, a sensible, <laughs> um, well-researched college list. So you know, I usually find that that they're they're ready to make that deposit at one school. Maybe they're still hanging out for some hope on the wait list. 
Right. And we're going to talk about the wait list and how students can engage with wait list strategies next week, because it'll be a little bit more timely as we get toward the end of April. And, and I invite our listeners to come back for that discussion. But I think that, you know, there is this sense of like holding out hope or remaining sometimes disappointed. I had a conversation with a student. It wasn't this week, but it was about a week, week and a half ago. And I think he was still in a situation where some of the schools that he had really hoped for, they were unlikely, but he was still authentically hoping for them had not come through for him. And he was in a position where I think he was still lamenting the loss of that opportunity, as opposed to getting excited about the opportunities that he had ahead of him. And Mm -hmm. I think that the first thing that you've got to do, if you're going to make this choice is put those deny decisions behind you, right? Is to say, okay, I gave my best shot. I applied to these schools. That opportunity is not available to me. I'm not going to sit here and say, oh, I wish I could, you know, change that outcome, right? Let's think about everything that lies in front of us. Um, We're going to talk in the final segment about um, some of the financial aid components that come into play here, but we get all the time these questions of like, what's going to be the better place for me professionally? Where do I go to make sure that I have job opportunities after I graduate? What school is better? Lauren, can you tell me where I should go to college? How do you help students that are in that mindset of thinking, I've got it down to two. Mm -hmm. Help me decide. What do you say in that circumstance? (laughs) Do you just answer it for them and then you're done and you'll walk away? Wouldn't that be awesome? If we could just make the decision for everyone out there, just the way that, you know, if, if you said, what car should I buy or what house should I buy? Like, I know it all, right? Right, right. <laughs> no, of course not. You know, those are those would be a ridiculous question to ask somebody else of, you know, should I buy a house X or house Y or car X versus Y? You know, you would never ask that. So it does always, you know, I, I find it strange that a student does ask or families sometimes do ask that about colleges because mm-hmm. this is a place you are going to live for the next four years. Where are you going to be happiest? Academically. For the most part, I would say a lot of colleges are really similar. Yeah. You know, biology is biology is biology. But are there certain professors that you're more excited about or certain specific classes um, that one school offers versus the other? If you're really getting into those granular details, like that's awesome. But if you are saying, well, you know, biology is great at both places, it's really everything else. It's, you know, are you going to get on a plane to go to college? And how does it feel if you can't get back for Thanksgiving? Um, you know, what are the factors that are most important to you of where you're of where you're going to thrive for the next four years? I really think at this point, like you're saying that I get that that sadness or you know moment of, of from your denies, but that is a March 20th feeling. That is not an April 20th feeling, right? right? Like I really do think right. like in the final days later, the students, you did all this for a reason, right? You do have offers. Now's the time to get excited about it. You have to choose one where you're going to deposit by May 1st. I think one of the reminders that I like to give to students is that, and, and sometimes it feels like I, I want to see dramatic differences between my two options and really not going to see that, especially if you've done a good job through the process, right? Like when I was buying a, a new car for our family and I started doing the research, I narrowed it down a lot. I started with a big list of cars. I thought about what our priorities were going to be. I got it down to a, you know, a set of 10 that I was researching carefully. And then the final two or three I wanted to pick. Mm-hmm. And at that point, it was like, I like the one, this one looks better. But I didn't make that choice because of how it looked. It was just that at that point, 
that was the only thing that was differentiating between all the research that I'd done up to that point. And so if you want to choose a school because you think the buildings are nicer or because you think that a professor, uh, you know, is going to be kind to you or whatever, that's not the reason you're choosing that college because you have all of these antecedent reasons that have been informing your search up to this point. And when it comes right down to it, it's really about a comfort level, which is, that's why, that's why it's so hard for people like Lauren and me to answer that question for students. We can talk about a significant difference between Michigan and Reed, but we can't really say, is it Michigan or Virginia for you? Because there's some similarities between those two, those two schools. All right. Let's talk a little bit about pragmatics here, right? So you submit your enrollment deposit. Do you just wait until the fall? Like, all right. I'm going to wait and show up on campus and that's it. What are some next steps after that decision has been made and the enrollment deposit has been? It, it does feel a little bit funny because I do get students and families say, okay, so my deposit, like, uh, what more, like, what more do I have to do? Like, or, yeah. it's almost like they're, they're hoping for more essays or something like you've been working, <laughs> doing all this work. It's like, okay, give me more. Right. Um, so first of all, you have to get it in by May 1st. And politely decline, as soon as you know that you have other offers out there that you are going to decline, the right thing to do is to let those schools know. Right. There are other students that are hanging, you know, on hope to, to get into those schools, maybe off of the wait list. So that is, you know, putting good karma out into the world. If you're letting, ready to let go of a school, please do. You don't have to wait till May 1st yeah. um, to, to let go of, of other offers. So that's important. Um, you're submitting your, your May 1st deadline a deposit. You can that's to one school. If you have waitlist offers, you can accept a waitlist offer. And I know we're going to talk about that next week um, and, and how that all works out. But just a technical question, you know, some families have asked, you know, can I deposit at one school and still remain on a waitlist? Yes, absolutely. You you have to, you have to deposit because that is your your security. That, right. That's your that's your home for now. Um, so from there, you still need to check and watch your email. You are going to get inundated um, with information about housing, um, uh, about um, you know the last big piece that you are required to do is sending in your final transcripts. So making sure that your counselor knows where your school counselor knows where you have deposited um, because that they need to get out your final transcript. Right. Um, and, and you can certainly talk a little bit more about what that transcript might might or could look like. Please don't let it have C's and D's and especially F's on it, right? Like this is where senioritis can, like I always tell students, don't worry about, you know, this, but if you fall off a cliff in terms of senior, cause you're like, I'm already into these schools. I don't care about doing my homework anymore. Your offer is contingent on continuing the level of academic excellence that you showed up until the spring of your senior year. And especially mm -hmm. if you fail classes that they expect you to have completed as a part of your graduation requirements. That's really bad, Lauren, right? Like it, it's really, it's really bad. bad. Yeah. Yes. You cannot drop off a cliff. If you are an A student and you end up with one B, should you be listening to this and panicking? No, you will almost certainly right. be fine with it. You might be you know? panicking, but you should yeah, you not be, be panicking. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. One B is not going to be a deal breaker. But if you're an A student and then you're getting C's and D's because you know you're just you're done, you're celebrating, you know, that offer and you think it's all good. Um, you know, I, I, it will be interesting because I have certainly seen offers or be rescinded for extreme situations. Um, but certainly I've, I've seen 
really serious conversations and students starting on academic probation. I mean, that is just a terrible way to start a college career on, on probation, but that's a possibility. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so don't be in that position, um, but no. do know that you have to send in your final transcript. And, and we, you know, absolutely keep your effort up, right? But there are situations where let's say a student has just like, maybe they've taken a test and they've bombed it. They tried really hard. It's a subject that they don't necessarily understand. And they are on track for a grade that is lower than any grade that they've received to that point. How would you advise that that student communicate with the admission office? Is this something where it's like, close my eyes and, you know, cover my ears and hope that nobody sees it? Or is it better to be proactive? How would you encourage students to think about this? Own it. This is your grade. This is what you received. It doesn't disappear. You have to send that transcript. Be proactive. Absolutely contact the admissions office. Um, now, you know, this is this is where things are going. Let them know. You do not want to wait until July when they're doing their final transcript review and they saying, wait a second, what happened here? Um, and you've just been ho- hoping that they didn't notice. They'll notice. You know, this is their job to read transcripts. So definitely be proactive, reach out to the admissions office, the regional admissions officer, if, if, if they, they label it that way, if you know who, who, which admissions officer there is for your state, but get in contact. Remember, they admitted you for a reason. They, they want, want you. you on campus. Yeah. They, want to, they want to hear from you and take, yeah. take ownership. And I, I had a student a few years ago, he was in a position where he was taking a very high level math class. And in the spring, he was on track for a D and he was just like, I, what do I do? I could withdraw from this class but it's likely I'll get a D. And, and we actually reached out to the admission office and, and he asked that question, what should I do? Should I withdraw or have this grade? And they said, well, we can't tell you what to do, but we can tell you that if you get lower than a D, it will trigger a re-review of your application. But if you have a withdrawal, it will not trigger a re-review of your application. Mm-hmm. And so he withdrew from the class. And so, you know, he tried his best. He couldn't get the grade that he wanted, but he was able to communicate proactively with that admission office. And they told him, here are the consequences of either option. He made the right choice. He ended up at that school in the fall. So they want you, right? Mm -hmm. Be proactive, communicate. And I think it always reflects well on you. And, you know, look, there are always going to be speed bumps along the way. And and I think it's a, it's a good lesson as you're heading into college that uh, you want to keep that, um, that momentum going all the way through. Um, Any other things that we can tell students, things that they can get excited by, just like last tips of what to look for as you're you're accepting all of this email and, and being inundated by communication from your future college? Uh, the only thing I would say is be kind to your parents as well. Just really, like as, I love as that. I really, I mean, as excited as you are to leave and this is, you know, your last summer, remember that, um, you know, think about like your excitement, make them part of it. Um, but, but acknowledge the role that they have played in getting you to this point. This is a really big deal for, for them as well, for you going off to college. So just acknowledge your parents. That's my last. A little thank you. And uh, a hug for mom and dad would be great. I think Uh, that's great advice, Lauren. Really appreciate it. Glad to have you on the show. Thanks for being here. Thanks Ian. All right, folks, when we come back, we're going to talk a bit about some of the financial aid components of exactly the process that we just discussed on the admission side. So come on back and we'll talk finances. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. College admissions can be stressful, but Bright Horizons College Coach is here to help. 
Our college experts, who worked in admissions and financial aid at some of the nation's most selective institutions, offer ethical, customized assistance based on each student's individual strengths and interests. Students receive one-on-one guidance throughout the process, and our 100% success rate means all of our students have been accepted to college. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To submit a question for an upcoming listener Q&A segment or to suggest an idea for a future segment, please send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. All right, everyone, welcome back to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. We're now getting over to the finance corner of our show for today and talking a little bit about what seniors need to think about as they head into this enrollment deposit season. Uh, And joining me to do that with his second, second appearance on the podcast is one of our newer educators, uh, former financial aid officer from Loris College. We've got Zach is it Greece or it's Greece, right? Greece, yeah. Similar to the country, spelled differently. Similar to the country. All right, perfect. So, are we, we're gonna do, but we're gonna do this in English. We're not doing it in Greek. Okay. Um, yes. Although sometimes, <laughs> and here's a terrible dad joke for you. Sometimes finance conversations are Greek to me. Okay. Um, so Zach, <laughs> thanks for being here. I'm sorry You're about so that. Welcome. Um, so we just talked a little bit about some of the things that seniors need to think about as they head through this phase on the admission side. And now we want to talk a little bit about financial aid. Now, the decisions have come back. They've gotten offers of financial aid. Um, they're probably starting to communicate in terms of their enrollment deposits. Is there anything that students need to do with respect to financial aid at this point uh, in, in the late, late spring of this process? That's a really good question, um, and and uh, I'll answer it with some general principles, and then some ideas that may help uh, a family really be thorough in in checking their own personal um, checklist, if you want to think of it that way as well. Yeah, that's um, great. But you know, generally speaking, at the time we're at now, where most of our listeners may be at, where they've got their financial aid offer letters, and they're either deciding or they've already recently decided. Um, at some point in this journey, it's not uncommon for colleges to shift their method of communication from personal emails, personal accounts, accounts that a student would have had when they started the application process to a more formal account, maybe the school's email system. Okay. And so one of the suggestions uh, I, I think is really valuable for families and students to keep in mind, um, no matter where they're at in this decision process, is you know, be aware that there will be that change in communication pathway. Um, Some colleges may do that change once a family attends orientation. Other colleges may be closer to the start of the fall. But be thinking that way and and just make sure in both cases, whether it's a personal email or a school email, that students are checking it periodically. You know, the worst thing that happens is a school messages a student and and it gets missed or you know lost in multiple emails that that might be received at this point. So gotcha. that's one general tip. Um, if you're at all unsure when that transition will happen, um, and an absolutely great question to ask the college if you're looking for more of a personal tip to really see this through. 
Um, so that would be that would be one item I've got that I, I thought would be valuable to mention. Um, the second item I thought I would mention is uh, generally from the financial aid perspective, uh, colleges, you, you can think of a college's role through this process as kind of creating a checklist. You know, they've got, you, you want to submit a FAFSA or a CSS profile. Um, if you use CSS, you may have to submit documents via the IDOC system. Okay. Uh, FAFSA may have some other steps. And so the college's role is to help you manage all of those steps. And if you're at all unsure if you've finished those steps, that's another good thing to be thinking about now that you're making your decision. And you can do that one of two ways. Um, again, it would be a great question to ask the college, either their admissions staff or their financial aid staff, or some colleges may have an online checklist in your admissions portal where you can sign in and see just for your own peace of mind that you've done everything that's needed at this point in time. So I thought those would be two helpful steps, no matter where students are going, um, to, to be thinking about as they're trying to firm up and finish up this process. Now, there are two communication channels, typically. You've got a college that's communicating sometimes with students and sometimes with parents. And often you have parents that are handling some of the strategy around paying for college. Maybe they're paying the bill. You've got students that are starting to think about what is my dorm going to be? How do I register for classes? And those kinds of conversations. Where does the communication typically go? And how can parents and students get on the same page in terms of sharing information that I, either of them has received individually, but is intended for them collectively to try and solve? That's a, that's a great point. Um, you know, what, what I noticed and observed when I was a financial aid director is that um, the default uh, recipient of messages was the student. Mm -hmm. And during the student's senior year, uh, when they're in high school, it wasn't uncommon to have some different chains of communication that were going to parents to help them understand when something went to the student that was worthwhile for the parents and the student to collaborate on. Um, that might not be the case at all colleges, but I, I think in that admissions journey, when you're a senior in high school through your enrollment decision, you could reasonably expect that colleges are communicating to both parents and students quite equally and transparently. What I think is worth uh, understanding as a, as a parent and, and maybe changing your strategy a little bit is that at some point, the school will likely interpret the student as an adult in the sense that there are similarly to, if you go to a medical provider, the medical provider can't provide your health right. records with others. Right. Colleges are unable to provide educational records with others, including your parents, unless a student has given them authorization as a as an adult. And so at that point, it really does shift to the student's responsibility. And if parents are really worried that, you know, maybe their son or daughter isn't going to communicate with them or doesn't understand what types of messages to communicate, to your point, the billing and the financial aid type of messages, um, I think it's really savvy for parents to maybe have weekly meetings or, or sit down with the, uh, you know, their child at dinner once a week and just collaborate on that and really use this next few months before the student arrives to college as a chance to iron out some of those formalities between what are you going to send and when and why and, and can we just make sure you're understanding that as a student um, who's going to need to provide us with information. That's right. I remember being in the, um, the community safety office for an unrelated reason. And I was listening to the community safety officer sort of saying, well, we can't go knock on his door. He's an adult. It's like mom was calling to be like, my son isn't responding to my phone calls. Can you go talk to him? And they're like, no, 
he's he's an adult at this point. Like, Beautiful, I'm sorry that he's not responding to your calls, but there's nothing we can do. When it comes yep. to the financial aid piece, I think it is a good idea to be on the same page, but maybe also want to talk about how regularly you're going to have those check-in family calls uh, during the yeah. school year. Um, so yes. we've figured out some of the logistical sides of how to handle this communication, but I think that there's also this big question of, well, how are we going to pay for this? And what does the actual strategy look like? And I think that's probably something that a lot of families have started to think about. It's something that I'm thinking about even as a parent of a nine and an eight-year-old, but now it's starting to get real. Um, what are we looking at in terms of starting to identify the, the strategy of paying for college? What are the different components that we want to assess and see how they're going to contribute? Great, great question. So um, I, I think, you know, the, the benefit of this time, uh, you know, being April when your students have likely made their decisions or they're, they're down to one or two colleges is that for the first time, likely in, in quite a long period of time, families can really make some pretty school specific strategies. Yeah. You know, when you're when you're considering 10 colleges, you can't make a specific strategy to 10 colleges because there's so much you don't know and there's so much variance. This is a really good time to assemble some tools um, and make some school specific strategies for that reason. Yeah. When I refer to tools, there's a couple things that I think families will really want to kind of amass in front of them and then start to, to depict it from there. So, um, for example, if they have a financial aid offer letter that spells out both the costs to the institution that a family is going to pay directly and the costs that are incurred outside of the institution, those two pieces of information are, are really valuable. So if a family is feeling like they don't have either of those numbers, that would be a great place to start is to collect them. Most families on their financial aid offer letter will see both of those pieces of data. Um, secondarily, uh, once a family has, has looked over their costs and, and they've understood what scholarships and grants, if any, can be used to offset them, the, the family will want to calculate uh, whatever balance they anticipate needing to pay. Right. We, we refer to that in the financial aid world as a net uh, cost. So the okay. difference between the gross cost and your scholarships and grants. And once you've got your net cost, you can really start to strategize with a particular school around things like, are we going to take the federal direct subsidized or unsubsidized student loans? If we are, can we pay the rest with cash or 529 accounts or savings? Um, and and if, we, if we don't have that amassed yet, can we rely on a payment plan at the college to make monthly payments for some of these costs? And if we can't do that, what are we thinking we could cover with those methods with the hopes that if you have to borrow a secondary option, you're, you're minimizing that secondary borrowing by using what resources you do have. So that method allows you to really work through this conversation quite a bit and, and make a school specific strategy. And I think that could be a really nice thing to do at this point in time. So. And some of the things that you just mentioned, um, payment plans and loans are great topics that we've explored in the past on this show. So people can dive into our archives and have a look at some of those uh, past conversations if they're curious about any of that stuff. Um, mm -hmm. But Zach, at what point do we start thinking about, you know, we've got a gap in our strategy. Let's say we've the net cost to us is going to be X, but we really only think we can afford to pay X minus Y. How do we find out how to actually support that Y? I mean, this is this is an important cost. It might be something that's that's hard for us to come up with. What are the sources that we can look into um, mm -hmm. aside from just hoping that we win the lottery? 
Yes. I, well, I will hope that all of our listeners win the lottery. <laughs> that would be great. It would be great. Yeah. the show, win the lottery. I wish we could make I'll, that happen. I hope, Ian, that you win the lottery. <laughs> That's great. I would have to play it, but uh, yeah, You're right. I, yeah, I also, I do hope for that. Your, for your eight and nine-year-olds. Um, That's right. Yeah. So uh, now if, if that doesn't come true and if our hope goes out into the uh, void and, and families don't happen to win, um, they're, they're usually at this point in time, there's uh, a family could plan on some kind of an educational loan. If there was a gap between their cash flow and their savings, and they said, we're, we're still about 10,000 short, that would be a great uh, place to then say, okay, we, we should plan on some kind of a secondary loan. Mm-hmm. Worst case scenario. Now, at some point, a family may need to put in a loan application and secure that. However, um, before doing so, some other strategies a family could employ even at this point in time would be things like outside scholarships. Um, They might entertain some kind of a appeal or negotiation to the college to help Mm -hmm. them solve an affordability problem. Um, So there's a couple other things a family could do that they may not be able to count on. It may not be an explicit part of their strategy yet but that you could employ now to try and make sure that when you, when, and if you choose to borrow a secondary loan, you're really making that as small as possible. Gotcha. So strategies to minimize any kind of a secondary loan, because that comes with expectations later on down the road in terms of how you pay it, the, the interest accrues, et cetera. So let's Got see it. what else we can do in the meantime. Absolutely. Great. I mean, it's not a decision and a conversation that I am looking forward to, but I am glad that um, I will have the experts at College Coach to help when that happens. Zach, thanks for coming on the show and helping us out here. Thanks so much. Best wishes to everybody. Appreciate it. So that's going to do it for today's show. Everyone really want to thank you all for being here. Give you a little reminder to leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcast, but especially if you listen to it on iTunes. Um, And we are going to be back next week. I'll be hosting and I'm going to be talking to Beth Heaton's son, Jack, to talk a little bit about his college search and the decisions. And we're going to talk all about whether his mom was tolerable in the process or not. I'm just kidding. Of course, she was wonderful. And we'll talk a little bit about waitlist strategies and what to do at this phase in the process. And finally, in the post-tax season, are there some tax advantage ways that we can start to save for college heading down into the future? So we'll see you next week. Looking forward to the next episode. Until then, Have a wonderful, wonderful weekend. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and the team of experts at Bright Horizons College Coach. Join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.